Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is October the 16th. It's morning in California, lunchtime on the East Coast, evening in Europe. And once again, as always, it's wall-to-wall Donald Trump. I even put a special graphic together, the Trump show, the ubiquitous, always-on, never-off Trump show. Uh, today, everybody's talking about this performance, if that's the right word, uh, that Trump had last night with uh, Susanna, uh, Savannah Guthrie uh, on, um, on, on NBC. Um, lots, as always, of talk on Twitter. I don't know how many hundreds of millions of, of, of Twitter followers Trump has, but once again, he dominates that medium. Everything, then, is Trump. Um, and to reflect that, we have a, a marvelous new book out on the Everything Trump show. Uh, it's by the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book reviewer at the Washington Post, Carlos Lozada. It's called What Were We Thinking? There's no question mark there. A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. And again, the intellectual bit is... Uh, is not stressed, but I'm wondering about that. Carlos, uh, congratulations on the book. It's getting a ton of uh, of coverage. As you said to me before we went on air, um, you're surprised that a, 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 a book, a, a meta book about other books is getting so much attention. Why do you think it's getting so much attention? First of all, I'm very grateful for the attention and thanks for having me on. Um, I I did think it might be a bit too removed from the daily headlines, sort of a, a, a book about books, but uh, maybe one of the reasons is that as as this presidential term is coming to a close, as the election approaches, um, I get the sense that people are interested in reflecting on on what happened here, on on what it all meant. You, the subtitle of your book is really striking: a brief intellectual history of of the Trump era. What were you trying to do with this? Is is there a joke there when when you use the word brief intellectual? Does that mean there wasn't much of an intellectual history coming out of your books? Or is it just a four-year history of the Trump era? Uh, I think it's brief in the sense that it was it is it is contained. I don't go back to look for the antecedents of this period. That's been something that a lot of people have done, you know, going back and finding the one book from 1978 that that anticipated everything. Uh, mm. And I focused instead on the works that came out during this period, trying to see how we grappled with Trump and Trumpism in in real time. Um, so it's it's brief in that sense. Some people have uh, suggested that there was some sort of uh, joke or satire in in putting Trump and intellectual in the same subtitle. Um, I didn't I didn't think of it that way because it's not really a, a book. It's it's a, it's a Trump book, but not a book about Trump. Uh, it's it's more about how writers and analysts and academics and insiders and journalists have have tried to make sense of it. As I said uh, uh, before we get, we went on air, Carlos, I share, quote unquote, your pain in the sense that 
our show has also covered a lot of the books that you cover in your book. We've had uh, Timothy Schneider, Ali, uh, Ali Russell Hothchild, uh, Peter Weiner, uh, Victor Davis Hanson on the right, Kurt Anderson, so many others of the books that you cover. You choose 150. How many uh, books about Trump did you actually read in the last four years? Or how many books that could have been yeah. included? Uh, how many did you have to eliminate from the 150? Yeah, there were many more that could have been covered in the book. Um, I read maybe a half dozen books about impeachment, uh, or maybe more than that, actually. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I could have had an impeachment chapter in, in the book. Um, but in the end, I, I wanted to focus on categories of writing um, that I felt demonstrated a lot of variety within them and where I could get an interesting sort of debate going in my own head among these books. And so there were, but I think there's, I mean, I, I could have written a second volume. There's a, uh, there's books on the fate of, of liberalism. There's, you know, there's books that are starting to come out on Trump's foreign policy. Right. Uh, the foreign policy you know, piece was, I thought, I, I was expecting that and it wasn't in it. Yeah. And I, I would have wanted to to do that. There were many books that came out early in the Trump years sort of anticipating what some of the potential turmoil in Trump's foreign policy could be. But there have been fewer that have been able to come out and assess it. Some have started coming out now that were too late for me to put in the book. If I were to do uh, uh, an additional chapter or something for a, for a paperback or, or, God forbid, a second volume, um, then probably... Uh, the foreign policy aspect would have to be in there. I would love to do a chapter on Trump and religion, Trump and the evangelicals. And that, yeah, we, you know, we've that, had a that, number of uh, that relationship. observers. We've had evangelicals and observers of, of, of Trump's weird religiosity on the show. So very briefly, Carlos, how did you break the book down? Because it's done very cleanly. Uh, you have, what, 10 chapters each? Or I think it's 10, each dealing with a particular sphere of the of the Trump show or the Trump phenomenon. Uh, yes. And, and part of this was chronological in the sense that, uh, for instance, I, I begin with a chapter that I call Heartlandia that focuses on so many of these books that emerged about the white working class and, yeah. and the sort of industrial Midwest and its, its, its support for Donald Trump. And those were books that started coming out very early in this the, administration. This is the Arlie Hothschild phenomenon. Yes. And yes, you give um, her a bit but, of a rough time. I, I love Ali. She's one of my neighbors in Berkeley. I thought you were a bit oh, cruel to her, weren't you? Uh, you know, um, that book got a lot of love. Uh, so <laughs> I think that that um, that any author, I mean, it was a finalist for the National Book Award. It, it yeah. got a lot of attention. I was not a huge fan of that book. I, I felt that there was um, a sort of underlying condescension to the the approach to it i i am not her neighbor so i can only go by what i read on the page yeah to, to um, defend so, Ari, I, I think she knows that and i think she feels it and it's sort of a triple amount of berkeley liberal guilt in that she went there with that at the back of her mind and she knew that it was inescapable but and that said i mean in that in that genre of of books um there's this um almost needless bifurcation in, in the way the authors grapple with this demographic, that that is that that people are trying to decide, uh, well, was it was it their economic struggles or was it cultural prejudice that drew people to Donald Trump? And some of the books that I, I found most useful were the ones that that showed how those things um, 
can often be tied together, can be inextricable, and that rather than pushing them to one candidate or another, it leads many to the conclusion that there's no place for them in the political system at all. Uh, but so that was the first. Yeah, chapter. and, and I, one thing that was interesting as well, there was another. There wasn't a section in the book on foreign observers on America, and I guess that first mm. section on the white working class was kind of foreigners going to another land. Of course, the greatest classic of all about America, uh, at least in written form, was Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Perhaps it requires a foreigner, Carlos, to really make sense of America. I think people that come from, I mean, there, there's a great tradition, right? Starting with, starting with, with, with Tocqueville of, of doing that. And um, I think there is a sense in which uh, bringing that kind of different eye uh, to, um, to any society can, um, can kind of let you see things a little bit more, more clearly, but with the drawback of, of, you know, you, you become sort of captive to, to whatever you happen to see and to, and to your own pre preconceptions about what's, what's going on. Yeah, I thought that, that if there was one argument that you have in the book, that was it, that Trump is this figure who confirms whatever you believed in the first place. He's the raw, what is it, the raw back test or whatever it's called, where you you come to an well, argument and he, yeah, yeah, he, he fits into whatever you believe in the first place. That's perhaps why there are so many books, so many theorists, so many TV shows and podcasts about him. There were several books, um, including some books that I thought were were quite good and, and 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 persuasive, that have that underlying vibe to them. That like, see, this just shows you what I've been thinking all along. And you see that in books as diverse as um, uh, Naomi Klein's book uh, "No Is Not Enough," where in Trump she sees basically the culmination of all the forces she's been writing about for years. But also in a book like "Audience of One." which is uh, James Poniewozik, the, the right. TV critic for the New York Times, his book about Trump and television and how he sees in Trump uh, sort of proof of all the, all the, all the trends in, in, in programming and in uh, audience silos that he's been writing about as a TV critic for, for years. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that they, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to see in a, in a figure as, as polarizing as Trump confirmation of your of your worst fears or of your hopes yeah and i and i actually am in his camp i think that he's right on the television quality where would you if you had a home in one of your 10 chapters carlos where would you be oh uh yeah i had not thought of that if i had a home well um you know it's it's interesting different parts of your identity come to the fore in different moments and um you know, friend, I'm I'm an immigrant. I, I came to this country as a child from 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 Peru, um, and that absolutely affects the way I evaluate this this period. So there's a chapter in in the book on on the debates over immigration, and for me, reading those books and and reflecting on on those debates became inseparable from reflecting on on my own experience. Now, it's solely my own. I won't I won't pretend to to speak for anyone else. Everyone's immigrant experience is 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 different. Um, but, you know, I I have gone through the naturalization process of becoming a citizen. I've, I've been terrified of losing my green card. Right. I've I've I have friends and relatives uh, at varying levels of of legal status. And so that's an understanding that I that I could could bring to it. At the same time, immigration is an act of faith. 
right? And and an act of of hope and of and of confidence in in the country that you're going to. And so that experience doesn't limit me to say, you know, the immigration debate. I think mm -hmm. the, the the debates over over the American idea and the future of American democracy also. Um, uh, immigrants also have voice in those conversations. Yeah, there was um, there were no Trump hen uh, no books about Trump henchmen in the book uh, in your book. Uh, the Steve uh, that that might also be an interesting follow up. The Stephen we had the uh, the woman who I've forgotten her name who, who I should remember it who who wrote the book on Stephen Miller. Uh, those kind uh, Jean, of Jean, Jean Guerrero. Yeah, Jean Guerrero. So uh, yeah. and and that's an interesting book, and she has a, a very interesting take on. Trump's relationship with his henchmen like Miller. Yes, I, I reviewed that book, but after it was too late to include in my book, I just reviewed it for the for the Washington Post. Would you put Post. that one in? Which one, which book isn't in which you reviewed too late that you regret? Oh, well, the, you know, that's certainly one of them. The, the big one is Mary Trump's uh, book, Mary Trump, Donald Trump's niece. Um, uh, yes, too much and never enough. Um, you know, I would have loved to include that one. Was uh, that because... the uh, was that the democracy in America? I know uh, you. Uh, I, I saw another interview, Carlos, where you suggested if there's one book that somehow captured the insanity of Trump's America and of Trump himself, it's his niece's book, Mary Mary Trump: Too Much and Never Enough. Yes. Uh, what I what I really enjoyed about that book is that it was such a unique vantage point on Trump, not just a family insider. But also, uh, someone with a with a doctorate in clinical psychology. I mean, that's that's a unique combination yeah. to evaluate this particular president. And also, uh, she has a clear axe to grind. But that's that's all on the table, right? That's she makes that very clear. Her family, her side of the family, got cut out of the of the Fred Trump family fortune uh, for a while. And um, you know, and and Fred, both Fred Trump, her grandfather, and Donald Trump, her uncle, treated her father. Uh, horribly. And so um, that's all very clear. And and yet she still has uh, just a, a very uh, compelling story to tell. So I would have loved to include uh, that book. There's been a, a, a rush of recent books on the Mueller report um, and on and on Mueller's investigation. Mm. Uh, for instance, Jeffrey Tubin's book, uh, Peter Strzok's book, the former FBI agent, Andrew Weissman, who served in the yeah, I, the Weissman's supposed yeah. to be coming onto this show. I uh, he promised me a couple of times, but we will eventually. Oh, good! You, you should you should have them. I mean, it was those are books that um, I absolutely would have would have included. Uh, uh, coming back to the Mary Trump book, uh, mm -hmm. Carlos, do you think the reason why it it, it it it's such a a jarring book, so accurate in so many ways? is because it combines, as you say, the intimacy of familial relationships and the distance of uh, her academic credibility. And you have to bring those two things together. And there have been books that have attempted to do one or the other of those things. There's been plenty of uh, armchair psychoanalyzing yeah. of Donald Trump over the years, uh, including by very well-respected um, Psychiatrists and psychologists and 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 academics um, who evaluate him, but it's always at a distance. Yeah. And and so Mary Trump's book to me was was utterly unique in in uh, exploring that. The only one that in any way approximates it is a book that I actually didn't like at all, but but was useful in in that regard, which was 
uh, Michael Cohen, his his lawyer and fixer, right. his book Disloyal, because it just shows you Trump very up close um, from someone who worked with him for for years and 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 spoke to him every day. One of my favorite moments in that book is when Michael Cohen has just started officially working for Donald Trump, and they're walking through the atrium on the on the ground level, I suppose, of of Trump Tower uh, for the first time together. And people just mob Donald, right? They come all over him. They 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 um, ask for his autograph and they want pictures. And um, suddenly uh, Trump turns to Cohen and just winks and, and whispers, this is what Trump is all about. And to me, that seemed like such a perfect moment uh, right. that captured um, the sort of theater around Donald Trump that's endured into his presidency. Yeah, and uh, Tony Schwartz, who wrote the original Art of the Deal, or co-wrote it, but actually wrote it, he was the one who also suggested to me that I should get Cohen on the show. I, I don't know if you saw Schwartz's latest book, uh, but it's... I have not read his, his it's latest It's actually really interesting, because what Schwartz does is compare Trump's relationship with his father with Schwartz's relationship with his mother. They were both very dominant. They both kind of ruined oh. their lives. So it's, 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 it's a good read. Um, I got the sense from reading your book that a lot of these books are disposable. They're not going to last very long. Is there a book or two in your in 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 the intellectual history? What were we thinking that you think will last that people will be reading in twenty or twenty five years? Um, a few thoughts on that. First, it's really hard to know, right? It's really hard to know what what will have real staying power as yeah. opposed to just appeal in the moment. I suspect a lot of the best-selling books of this time may not be the books that we're looking back on. Well, certainly not ago. Michael Wolf, right? Yes, <laughs> for example. I mean, but he had the first mover advantage. He was right. you got to admire him for that because only Michael could have done what he did. It was it was remarkable, and I remember when that came out. I was up all night reading it because I had to post my review the next day. It was very stressful and annoying, but everyone was reading that book. Um, so. But that, for instance, I think aside from kind of in maybe in journalism studies, when we look at how this presidency was covered, people will be reading a book like that. Um, but I found that the most helpful, perhaps lasting and enduring books for me were ones that were far removed from the day to day mayhem of mm. the Trump White House. They were the books that showed how this period fits into the larger arc of the American story. So a book like uh, One Person, No Vote by Carol Anderson. And Carol has been a, a frequent guest on the show. She's also a friend. I, I think uh, her voice and her writing and her research is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's been essential in, in this period. And that's a book that leading into an election right now mm. uh, that shows that the history and evolution of, of tactics of, of voting suppression is, is really important. Yeah. A book like... Um, Unmaking the Presidency by Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes uh, is one that um, looks at this uh, this frequent refrain of like how, how Trump has eviscerated norms of presidential behavior, but it shows you where those norms came from, how they built up around the presidency mm -hmm. and what it means uh, long term to the institution to have a president disregard them. And a book like Jill Lepore's These Truths, I think that shows how we've struggled for so long to put um to to 
to really unleash those self-evident truths of the Declaration, I think um, is is essential right now. Yeah, jail yeah. jail is supposed the to come on books. the show too. I, I thought the best, yeah. the most interesting book, although it could have been more substantial, was Michael Lewis's book about the decimation of the American state. And I thought his anecdotes about the the the, the last you know, the, the early moments of the Trump presidency and of his conversations with Christie were, were really astonishing. That's a wonderful book, uh, the, the Fifth Risk. Um, you know, it's not as sexy as, as Liar's Poker or The Big Short or, yeah. you know, Moneyball, um, Lewis's, Lewis's famous works. But uh, in a moment when we're mired in this, you know, weird conversation about the the, the deep state and the Obama holdovers and the bureaucrats yeah. who are undercutting Trump, that book almost feels countercultural. It's 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 a it's it's a love letter to the expertise and dedication of the federal workforce. I would like to see uh, Lewis try a novel, although I'm not sure what his novels would be like. There, are, of course, no fiction in your book. Uh, is there a Delilo of the Trump age? Perhaps Delilo himself. Uh, <laughs> Will the novelists eventually get to Trump? I've had one or two novelists on the show. Uh, Vanessa Vaseca, for example, who's written an interesting book. It's kind of about Trumps of America. But when will the novelists like Delilo, I don't know whether we call him a novelist, get to Trump, Carlos? You know, there's one novel that I read during, I mean, I read several novels during this period as a kind of respite from, from all the nonstop political nonfiction. But there's one novel I read during this period that stayed with me and that almost feels like a sort of tangential Trump novel. And that is a book called American War by a writer named Omar el -Akhad. And it imagines a second American civil war set some 50 years from now. And it's a, it's a resources war in part. Um, climate change has run its course. Uh, Florida is now the, the Florida Sea. There's internally displaced populations in the United States. The capital has relocated to the Midwest. You have, um, uh, you have domestic terrorism, you have militia groups, uh, you have radicalized youth. Uh, these are all things that the author, who's a journalist, covered around the world, covered terrorism and, and domestic uprisings and, and military tribunals. And he just put them all in the United States. And it's a world in which red and blue America have ceased to be just election night constructs and kind of political reporting themes and have become real physical realities. And uh, when I, I think it was out in 2017, uh, I, I believe. And that's and called the American War. Yeah, we'll have to get, we'll have to get the, the author yeah, on I, the show. I, I felt like it was almost a, like it had these flash, flashes of, of plausibility. And it seemed to me like a, a novel for the Trump era without being on the Trump era. Yeah, although I think, I don't know if we want plausibility because Trump himself is not really plausible, is he? Um, that's been a, a constant refrain, I think, of the, of, 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 of the times, how unprecedented and unusual he seems to be. Um, that said, all the debates we're having under Trump are, are debates that are just part and parcel of the American experience, debates over immigration and xenophobia and 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 who um, who has the right to vote who who really belongs um, Trump may seem unprecedented but these battles are are precisely who we are it's just where we're starting and that's why Trump will be around even in the post-trump world uh, Carlos you're the book reviewer of The Washington Post so you're immersed in books but talk to me about other forms of protest or 
commentary on Trump. Uh, the musicians have been very busy. Uh, Demi Lovato has a wonderful song. And to me, at least, the most effective way of parodying Trump has been um, Sarah Cooper. Uh, to what extent could a book get to that satirical edge that Cooper has? Because after all, she's just repeating what mm -hmm. he says um, with her face, and she's a wonderful actress. Uh, I absolutely recognize the the limits of this project that I've embarked on, that I that I solely use books to try to understand this period. Um, there's, as you say, there's there's music, there's theater, um, there's all sorts of different media. I mean, there's 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 podcasts, there's there's photography, uh, there's fiction, um, and so, so I certainly appreciate all those all those ways to try to understand Trump. Uh, this just happens to be the one that I focus on. Um, you know, someone, someone in a, in, in a conversation uh, brought up, brought up Cooper and, and um, I, you know, I, I love each and every one of her, of her new videos. Um, I think she's, she has some kind of um, sort of like larger special coming on, on yeah, television. She, she has a new uh, deal, which she and, deserves. And, by the way. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I think the the there's some ways that Trump feels beyond satire that you know you you couldn't even make up some of the scenarios that that we actually seem to be engaged yeah. in. But um, you know, I love Evelyn Wall, and I just wish like that kind of voice could be around as well to um, to capture Trump in writing, but with that satirical form. Some have asked me if the if the title of the book is is satire, but 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 it's not. Well, finally, Carlos, uh, in these strange times, you're locked at home in suburban Maryland in an undisclosed location. Uh, <laughs> your book is a, is a wonderful book, as I said, a really excellent introduction to the intellectual life in, in Trump's America. What were we thinking? Uh, people really need to read that. Uh, you mentioned that we're still waiting for our Evelyn War book about Trump's America. What what should people be reading in addition to your book? You mentioned the American War. Anything else in particular? Uh, at the end of um, of my book, in an epilogue, I list the the dozen books that I find mm. uh, most helpful uh, for me in understanding this period. Um, but all I would encourage uh, people to read is is um, or in, in terms of reading is simply to maybe try to get beyond the this compulsive fascination with Trump himself, with the man at the at the center of it all, um, because it's not really about him. Uh, you know, there will be a moment when when the Trump presidency is 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 beyond us. And right now, all our fights are seem to be focused entirely on him, your, your resistance or your base. And there's nothing else. And the moment he's not at the center of the story, we'll realize that our, our real divides are actually a lot more complicated. Uh, and so I would that would be my only note of encouragement. Uh, don't feel like what you read next has to be focused on on him. Do you have a title in mind? Any suggestions? I, I, I mentioned Jill Lepore's uh, These Truths. Um, that's a book that I think um, will will stand the test of time in in some ways. I personally have been reading. Um, I'm from from Peru, as I said, and uh, our our Nobel laureate, our greatest novelist, is is Mario Vargas Llosa, and I recently read um, 
I'm embarrassed to admit for the first time, I'd read most of his works, but I hadn't read his real masterwork, which is Conversation in the Cathedral. And that is a book about a country in a period of soft authoritarianism for eight years, or excuse me, for, for, for 11 years. And um, I didn't, I only read it last year. I didn't think that it would feel in any ways uh, apropos of our moment in the United States, but, um, but it, it certainly uh, gave me a lot to reflect on. It was set in the 1950s in Peru and shows how students and politicians and artists all grapple with living under an authoritarianism that they did not expect. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.